Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I am here today with Kevin J. Wetmore, Jr., professor uh, and chair of theater arts at Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, to talk about his new book, Eaters of the Dead, Myths and Realities of Cannibal Monsters, out 2021 with Reaction Press. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you. It's a genuine pleasure to be here. Wonderful. I am so happy to talk to you. How are you this fine day, morning for you? Uh, my standard answer has become surviving. Uh, it's, you know, the, the world's gotten interesting and uh, the rules change on the daily. So uh, as a horror fan, it's kind of fun to finally be an apocalyptic dystopian uh, feature, but um, the rules keep changing. So this is terrible writing, uh, but otherwise uh, surviving. <laughs> It is truly terrible writing. Like, you know, um, we jumped the shark on this so long ago. Like any franchise, though, it just keeps going long, long after the idea is done. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're repeating some of the same things over and over, and then we're making new mistakes that make absolutely no sense. And it just yeah. makes you want to go back and watch the original and be done with it. No, for sure. And I've got no problems, like, with the, you know, the character switches we've seen so far, but... I'm really not looking forward to any kind of reboot. Yeah, the um, 2022 season really should be the last. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> I'm going to look for trouble. new binge viewing and living. Yeah, and I don't need a new, like a new Darren or whatever at this stage. Fair enough. So, Fair enough. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, based on that conversation, I probably don't need to just say the next sentence I'm going to say. But so you're not just a professor of theater, right? That's fair to say, yes. Yeah, this is one aspect of your life, your like intellectual life even, is is the professor mm. gig. So like, tell us about you and your, your work writ large. I, I think it's charitable to even call that the intellectual part of my life. Um I uh, I profess, as you noted, um, I again my running gag is uh, I'm an example of the productive use of ADD. Uh, I'm an actor, I'm a director, I'm a professor of theater. Although I also teach classes for the School of Film and Television in Japanese cinema and horror cinema, 
I'm a horror writer and I'm the co-chair of the local chapter of the Horror Writers Association. So I write fiction and horror plays and a lot of horror nonfiction. Uh, But I also work in Asian theater and African theater. I was the first North American host of the International African Theater Association's conference. Uh, We brought it to Loyola Marymount, my school. Um, So I I work in Africa and Japan a lot. Uh, I'm interested in theology and theater. So I teach courses in that because I'm at a Jesuit university. I'm a stage combat choreographer and an actor, and I run a Shakespeare festival. Uh, I have two kids. I'm an Aquarius. I like long walks on the beach, um, which is easy mm-hmm. in Santa Monica. Um, sure. So the Good. it's it's one of those things where um, you know when when asked as a child, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" My answer was everything, and I've I've kind of tried to make good on that promise. Uh, well, sure. I'm an astronaut or a dinosaur yet? But, yeah, but you've uh, got time. You've exactly. got time. I'm middle-aged if we live to be 100, but uh, okay, yeah. There's no reason to believe we won't. And I mean, Exactly. Well, the way I'm going, again, this <laughs> conversation about surviving. I'm, I'm just trying to see 53 at this point. <laughs> oh, God, I hear you, right? Like, it's shocking because it feels like it never ends, but yet somehow it keeps going on. And I, I haven't accomplished a thing, but I feel like waking up every day, some sort of, I should get a prize of some sort. Indeed. It's, uh, yeah. But then, I, as a as a proud son of New England and, and Puritan forebears, if if I'm not being productive, uh, I am in a great state of sin. And yet, at the other hand, the global situation seems to say, "Why not just spend the next year on the couch, drowning your sorrows in a river of pizza and French fries?" And this also has its merits. So, uh, especially as a theater person who spends a lot of time making theater and doing theater and teaching theater, uh, doing so on a computer for a year and a half. Uh, was challenging and certainly uh, a teachable moment in teaching opportunities. Hey, let's learn how to act on film in your childhood bedroom alone. Uh, but it's uh, it's wearing, particularly for someone who's used to stage combat and stunt work and, and Shakespeare and being outdoors with an audience of several hundred people. Uh, this this is not not this was not my choice. <laughs> yeah, I I see that. Um, yeah, you know, I'm an historian by training and I keep thinking about that. Like, this is this wonderful moment for me to understand, like I am living through a moment that people will discuss later. And so this is good for my development and I can intellectualize that till the end of time, but I'm just so bored. I'm so bored. I'm done with being histories. Let, let, let someone else, you know, have, have the turn. I just want to go see a band, man. I just, <laughs> I just like, it's band, so, movie. Yeah. I where we're shut down. I would just like to have a glass of wine on the corner instead of you know by myself. But enough, enough with the whining. Uh, it'll it's fine, you know. Well, anyway, all right. So yeah, so you've had this like clearly it is when someone when you were little you were like I'm going to try to do all of it and we'll see how that goes. But one thing that I see like kind of running through all of it is this long term interest in the macabre. Um, right. And it's safe to say maybe in a bit of foreshadowing that you're a bit ghoulish. Um, yes. So <laughs> is that fair? I've written this book. I don't know if I'm comfortable with the word ghoulish anymore because I talk about the word in the book and how there's a chapter on ghouls since it's about cannibal monsters, which is also a misnomer. The press and I had had words over this because I'm like, most of these monsters aren't cannibals. They don't eat themselves. They eat dead human corpses. Uh, which again makes for very pleasant dinner conversation, or you know, when I'm when I'm meeting with parents as part of my role at the university, I'm like, what are you working on right now? Oh, corpse eating cannibal monsters. Um, it's it's related to my job here. That uh, you know, it's amazing kids actually come to the school. Um, but having said that, I, the the word ghoulish 
we use to mean someone who's particularly interested in the macabre and once slows down as you drive past the accident so you can see the bodies and goes online to find footage of executions. And I'm not quite that guy. Um, but I'm, I, I'm fascinated by death, partly I suspect because I'm terrified of my own, uh, but also because it's just this sort of fascinating thing in our culture in terms of it, it, it's, it's the great mysteries of what happens after we die. Uh, and you know, uh, why do we die? Uh, you know, who, who came up with that idea? Uh, but also how we culturally process death. Um, you know, you, you don't see animals necessarily having funerals. You don't see, uh, people, you know, you, you, uh, if a dog passes away, you don't see a group of dogs gathering in the church basement to talk about what a great dog he was. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by how different cultures memorialize the dead, honor the dead, fear the dead. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm also a horror writer. And so the other thing that, that sort of goes hand in hand with uh, the death is the notion of fear. What are we afraid of? Why are we afraid? And, and as a theater person, I've spent the past decade as a director and writer exploring how do you create fear on stage? Um, and especially with death, we have sort of two related fears of death is, is the, the death of ourselves, fear for self, but also the death of someone else, fear for other, which is, of course, how horror cinema works. We, we don't want that nice young person to get mercilessly slaughtered by the man wearing his mother's face as a mask. Um, so. But don't we a little... Also, well, yes, that's the whole Freud thing, isn't it? Eros and Thanatos. <laughs> we fear sex and death, and we really want them both, sometimes at the same time. Uh, and so that's, you know, so much of human culture is that, is the connection between desire and fear, the connection between not wanting to die ourselves and really hoping that final girl makes it or that, you know, Tom Hanks doesn't get eaten uh, by the Da Vinci Code or what have you. Uh, but at the same time, serving a, we don't want to see Jamie Lee Curtis die but everyone else in Halloween needs to go yeah for sure yes so we, we we give ourselves one until 9-11 because I wrote a book called post 9-11 horror in American cinema and one of the things that really struck me just as a observer of horror and a scholar is that after 9-11 we got rid of the final girl we got rid of the survivor um you have films like the mist films like the strangers where it's all about let's just kill everybody well what about the final girl no she dies too mm, 9-11 you don't you don't get killed because of what you did. You get killed because of where you were. In fact, to me, the most horrifying post 9-11 line from a horror movie is from The Strangers, where uh, the, the dying female lead asks the killers, why she, you know, why are you guys doing this? And the woman just looks at her and says, because you were home. You didn't do anything. You're just here when we showed up. And so we're killing you. You don't deserve it. There's nothing to do with it. It's just going to happen now. And that random, meaningless, utter despair is uh, that, that sort of existential nihilism, I think, really manifested more in horror than anywhere else. Whereas the rest of the United States was, was sort of banging the gong loudly and mm -hmm. patriotism and America. Horror cinema was like, we're all going to die unpleasantly, alone. Yeah, That's right. how you should be feeling right now. And that? Uh, that is appropriate. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I suppose that's why I like horror, because there's an odd comfort to it. Death comes for us all. At least I'm not being eaten by a giant shark. Yeah, fair. Um, and it's a terrible way to go. Not that I know of. I mean, that's why I stopped going <laughs> yeah. in the ocean. But I, I with see. my luck, the way the world is right now, the sharks will figure out, come to the apartment, knock on the door, and be like, is Kevin here? We just need to talk to him. There, and uh, there my wife will have her glasses on, so she'll be like, oh, Kevin, there's someone here for you, a large grayish blue fellow. He's wearing a funny suit. Yeah. Weird accent. You know, it's, I, you know, never say never. I could be eaten sure. by a shark. 
Sure. That's, it's not, I mean, there is an ocean very close to you. There are sharks. Um, and so fear, death, like fear of death, mm-hmm. this, this thing, and, and, and an interest in horror as a genre. Yes. So how does this all coalesce into Eaters of the Dead? Like everything else in my life, uh, it was a complete accident that then became a thing. Uh, much of my life has been someone going, hey, you there, you want to do this? And me going, wasn't planning on it, but okay. And next thing I know, I'm you know in Africa. Uh, sure, why not? So um, in terms of Eaters of the Dead, the, because of, my dean asked me the same question. Okay, Mr. Theater Professor, why are you writing about cannibal monsters? And my response was, because the, the, they show up in the theater quite a bit. We have Seneca's Thyestes, where a man feeds his brother his own children. Uh, we have Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, with the most unsayable line in all of Shakespeare. Where are my sons? There they are, baked in that pie. Like, not even Patrick Stewart could make that line work. No. There they are, baked in that pie. And you're like, nope, sorry, Captain Jean-Luc, uh, no. There's no. no way to make that line not funny. So there's this whole notion of unknowing cannibalism, the fear of eating someone, the fear of eating human flesh unknowingly, and even worse, the fear of incestuous cannibalism, eating the the flesh of someone to whom you are related. And uh, I was teaching a course on horror in the theater, and we were talking about this, uh, and we got into a a conversation about cannibal monsters and depictions of cannibal monsters, uh, and I realized there was nothing out there on it. And then as I continued to look around, uh, there are a number of plays in which people consume the dead. Uh, in, for example, Philippine culture, they have the aswang, which is, uh, there are a couple different kinds of aswang. There's a vampiric one. There's one that the head separates and the viscera hang down from it and flies around at night attacking people. But one of, one variation on the aswang is a corpse monster. Uh, it's a, basically a corpse-eating monster. And there are uh, several aswang films and several aswang plays. And the more I began to look around, particularly after the Donner Party, for example, there were plays about cannibals out west and Alfred Packer. And I realized there's, there's a sort of an entire culture of eating the dead. Uh, and it's sort of the two great taboos, corpse violation and cannibalism. These are big no-nos in a lot of human societies, except when I started digging, I found out, no, there are some societies where that's how they dispose of the dead. Uh, or that they mm-hmm. dispose of the dead by, you know, for example, in Tibet, uh, Zoroastrian sky burial, that we leave the body out for carnivorous birds to devour, and then you grind the bones down to dust. Uh, because fire and earth and water are all too sacred. For us to, mm-hmm. and in Tibet, there's not enough wood for um, for cremation, and you can't bury people on sort of granite mountains. So, yeah, sky sure. burial makes a lot of sense. That's uh, just, yeah, and then looking at parts of Indonesia where you know the bodies are placed in trees for monitor lizards and komodo dragons to devour, and it's this notion of this is actually returning the body to the earth. It's completely natural. It's not horrible. Mm-hmm. So you have some cultures that are saying, you know, what, it's okay. And even within our, even within American history. You know, the story of the Essex, which results in Moby Dick, the boat sinks and they're like, well, we can sail, you know, a couple hundred miles that way. But those are lands settled by not European people or we can go back to the European colonies in South America. It's about 2000 miles. I'm like, well, let's do 2000 miles because those people are cannibals. And the irony is then they begin drawing straws in the boat to see who you kill to get eaten. But the what's called the law of the sea, and I realize I'm speaking very fast and a great mm-hmm. deal because I'm excited, which tells you far too much about me. Uh, <laughs> the... Um, if you murder some, if you kill someone so that everyone else in the boat can live, so long as you follow a process where it was fair and random, we can't go, well, nobody likes Dave, so let's just kill him. It's we draw straws, shortest straw gets eaten, second shortest straw has to kill him, and the rest of us agree we'll all take the blame. 
there's, I think there's only one example in all of history where people were prosecuted and found guilty for that. Otherwise, it's just kind of accepted that it was necessary for the rest of you to survive. So that's not actually killing this yeah. person to sacrifice themselves. So there are yeah. circumstances where we permit it. But there are also th- circumstances like in Ukraine during the Second World War uh, or uh, during, uh, during Stalinism, where there's massive famine resulting in cannibalism. And it's you know, it's this sort of horrific history that is then presented as cautionary tale to the rest of the world. Look what happened there. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and, and if everything goes right, you know, even here with Western culture, like even like, you know, we have this idea that you become, you, you were dust and you go back to dust. You're, 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 you go to the worms, right? Yeah. Even if everything goes properly, someone's eating <laughs> you. Something. Yes. That, that's where the book begins, that you are, you are. Even the language that we use, you're consumed by the flames if you're cremated. The word mm-hmm. sarcophagus literally means body eater. Sarx phagus. Uh, sarx body, phagus eating. So a sarcophagus is a box that eats a body. Oh, wow. That you are consumed from, you know, from the second you die on a cellular level, as your cells begin to die, your own body begins to eat itself. It begins to get dissolved. The bacteria in you begin to eat. And then other things come along, uh, insects, predators, etc. you know. There are maggots growing on your body from flies blowing things within hours if the body's just left out in a warm climate. So in the end, even if you are embalmed and buried, you are consumed by something. So all, mm-hmm. all dead are eaten, um, which sometimes is, was one of the running titles for the book. Uh, but that, I think that got too esoteric. Uh, but in the end, all dead are eaten. You're eaten by something. So it may as well mm-hmm. be someone who enjoys it. Sure. Or someone that, you know, stays alive or Indeed, makes a ritual yeah. of it. And Monty Python has that wonderful sketch about that where they're, they're arguing over who they're going to eat in the lifeboat. You know, you know, I wish you'd all stop arguing and eat me. No, I don't want to. You're too lean. I, I like my meat, you know, a bit thicker. I'd rather eat Hodges. Okay, then we'll eat him. No, no, no. Let's eat him. Uh, and it was, you know, the, they knew the sketch was offensive and the BBC made them write some things at the end of it to make it even more offensive in the end. Uh, <laughs> but it's this notion of... Um, being eaten isn't the worst thing in the world, particularly if you're dead. What do you care? Sure. You're gone. Hmm? So. Yeah. All right. We've lots of different things going on and this is appropriate because there's a lot that goes on in this book. Um, and I, you know, one of the things before we get into a little bit more of the argument, I want to talk about your sources because they are also just so capacious, right? And a way that this is demonstrated by these fabulous illustrations, I love a good illustration in a book and yours are magic. I mean, on the cover, we've got Goya, um, right? Um, Cronus devouring his children. Yes. Thank you. I even have it written down, yet I couldn't come up with it. And then immediately Gustave Doré's Little Red Riding Hood. But we've got medieval woodcuts, medieval Buddhist scrolls from Japan, 80s era film stills. There's a whole thing in Italy going on I didn't know about. Um, Modern opera art. So you've got this like wide variety of images representing a really broad variety of sources. How did you how did you collect these? Like what what made your cut? How did you come to this? Well, the the images themselves were kind of dictated by the text. And during the research, I would sometimes come across an image and say, oh, I, I want to use that in the book. But here's where credit is also due to the publisher. They came back at me and because they said, we, we want you to provide about 20 illustrations. And I did. I'm like, okay, here's a film still from Beowulf. And here's uh, this German fountain uh, of an ogre who eats children. Uh, and here's some Dore illustrations. And here's some stuff from uh, Cannibal Holocaust, the, the, the movie. Uh, and they came back and said, well, we also found all this stuff too. Um, 
is it okay if we include these things? And so the the, the researchers at, at Reaction Books, who were a wonderful publisher, and I loved working with them, uh, they found even more. So if the book is as good looking as, as you say it is, and I'll take your word for it, because uh, as an author, I, you know, I, I look at my stuff and I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so but um, yeah. Reaction deserves the the lion's share of the credit for that. Uh, I, I provided less than half of what made the final cut, and they found a lot of stuff. And they would come to me and say, "Well, what about this? Where do you think we could find this?" And say, "Oh, find a good woodcut of a medieval, you know, a medieval hellmouth for a theater, because there are a bunch of those, and those look really good." Or there are some medieval illustrations of the Tale of Thyestes, where it's just you know, there's a little head on a plate. Uh, find the one that works for you, and they did. <laughs> Uh, and in some cases, like for Algernon, there's a whole chapter on Wendigo, uh, Algernon Blackwood's story, the Wendigo, and his Wendigo isn't cannibalistic at all, but I'm like, you can't talk about Wendigo without talking about it in fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to take just a quick side detail here. What happens in a lot of the chapters is I explore, as it's called, the myths and realities of monsters for things like Ghoul and Aswang and Wendigo, going and looking at the, the historic context and the myths of the people who uh, believe in this monster or develop this monster, and then looking at how it's been used in popular culture and literature and cinema throughout the world. And so how Wendigo sort of drifts from this Cree and Ojibwe and First Nations entity into sort of a flavor of the month monster on Supernatural, the TV series yeah. and, and various movies. I love that episode. That, uh, and it's a good episode. Yeah. Uh, but it's, there, it's, it's American appropriation, or more accurately, it's Hollywood appropriation of a native... American First Nations monster that they're sort of tweaking around so that the uh, the brothers um, Winchester can fight it. Uh, and in much the same way, you know, when you go back and look at the Arabic ghoul, the ghoul is very different through time. Mm-hmm. So the, the book, uh, here I'm, you're about to hear me get professorly, the book deals with monsters both synchronically and diachronically across time and moments in time mm-hmm. uh, to see the transformations of these these entities that eat corpses and what that tells us about cultures. And one of the overarching themes of the book is they show up in cultures where famine is not always a reality, but often a reality. That there are times when we're fine and there are times that we worry. And so the times that we worry, there's a monster out there that can eat. And so, of course, the dual ghoul is from the desert and the Wendigo is from the Arctic, places where food scarcity can be a very real problem at times. Um, so going back to your original question, yeah, the publisher got a whole bunch of really pretty pictures and part of the fun of writing the book was also then taking the research that I already done and looking at some of these images and saying, oh, when you look at the Goya painting, yeah, it's a guy devouring his own kid, uh, or more accurately, a Titan devouring his own child, but his face is terrified. He's not enjoying this process. He's not a happy, well, that solved that problem. No one's going to supplant me. He's psychotic and freaked out. And what he's doing is clearly terrifying him. So the book also gets into that, the sort of fear of being a cannibal that we might inadvertently have to eat. And certainly that's something that shows up. And I just finished this Sunday watching Yellow Jackets on Showtime, which mm. is about a girl's soccer team. That's uh, their plane crashes. They're lost in the woods for over a year. And at some point they begin to eat each other. Uh, and I'm annoying my wife sitting back going, that's from Alive. That's from the Uruguayan <laughs> rugby team. Okay. That's actually from the uh, Colorado. You know, there are all these different sources that are being pulled in there. And I'm the guy who knows about people who eat people now. I'm sure that's what I really enjoy. I'm sure you're a lot of fun to watch a movie with, actually. Terrible. <laughs> but, you know, the, that moment, um, the, the cover illustration, the Goya, like, it's the thing, too, there's this other level that 
Um, your Titan's miserable. The creature being eaten is miserable, but your artist is miserable. He is, he is not happy when he's painting this. Nope. And if you, you know, when you are looking, when you are confronted with these images in that small room, you're not happy either. Like there's just, but there's a gaze and you can't pull away, but it's really horrific. It's such a brilliant way to really introduce you to, to as it turns out, all of these things you're going to hit on in the book. Yes, indeed. See, I, I, I would take that just a little bit further and say, yes, Goya is definitely not happy. There are two kinds of people who are looking at the Goya painting. Those who look at it and go, ew. And those who look at it and go, huh, cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's room in the world for, for both kinds. Uh, and then there are, you know, people like my brother who are like, why are we even here? Let's let's go get something to eat and walk through the room. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, this is yeah. Yeah. Um, but the the... To me, that's the hmm. most exciting thing, as, as if I may be so bold an artist in my own right and a scholar of the arts. I, I like looking at how creation, the things that artists create, create a response in the audience. And what is that response? And to what extent can the artist manipulate or control that response? And to what, as a theater person, I, I constantly tell my, my students, the one thing we can't control is the audience. And, and art doesn't mean it generates meaning. Because the last thing that comes to any piece of art is the person encountering it, what they bring. So that's why you can be listening to a song and be like, this is the stupidest thing ever. And you reach to turn it off and your friend is like, no, leave the radio on. This is my jam. Like, really? I just learned something about you because that's what art doesn't mean. It generates meaning. And so Mm -hmm. Goya, I think, is a perfect example of that, that this is a very simple painting. It's on my wall over here behind me. I look at it and it generates incredible meaning. But what it means depends on who's looking at it. Who's in there? And there is, you know, that that back and forth art creator and created the like, art and artists, like mm-hmm. you know, consumer of art and the art itself. I mean, no place is that relationship more clear than theater, right? Because yeah. it's oh, happening. very much so. You get immediate feedback. I mean, we're still talking about Goya. Everyone who saw the original performance of Hamlet is long dead. Well, except for two of us. But uh, again, the theater is ephemeral. It's temporally and spatially located. It's in a place and a time and. Even if you go see Hamilton tonight and I see it tomorrow night, we didn't see the same show. Mm-hmm. There are variations in the actors' performances, variations in ourselves. So I, I love that fact that theater is so unstable as an art form that meaning is generated in the moment of creation between performer and audience, and it can never be recreated in exactly the same way again. That makes it somewhat special and unique. And I mean, these and the stories, right? And like thinking back to, you know, the stories of cannibalism. Uh, and not just can- cannibalism and anthropophagy, anthropophagy. Anthropophagy, right? yes. Yes, I was trying to make up a question so I could say that word out loud, and I just couldn't come up with one, so I'm saying it now. Well um, done. Thanks. I'm pretty pleased. Um, so, you know, these stories as well also change. Like I'm thinking about. You know, uh, Hansel and Gretel, which you talk about in the book, which is really fundamental, right? Everybody, every kid in like in kind of the European diaspora knows that story. But it's a really different story if your mom's telling it or if you're like you're hearing it at a slumber party or if you are an early modern peasant who might be eaten. Indeed. (laughs) Or an early modern child who might be abandoned out in the woods because there isn't enough food. I mean, the whole point of Hansel and Gretel is there's not enough food for a family of four. Let's get rid of the kids. They gotta go. And they end up living with a woman whose entire house is built out of food and who would rather eat people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So disturbing. Yeah. Also, kids, listen to your parents. Don't just run off. Bad things will happen. Yeah. Indeed. Or, you know, or maybe you'll make it back. But so there is this ongoing, it, I mean, this is something, you know, you, you cite Jeffrey Cohen that like monsters reflect us and they really move with us as well. Right. Mm. So then there's something that I think is very compelling that you clearly do as well. You wrote the book that there's such a long term fear of being of death and consumption, like death and being consumed. Indeed. Right? I mean, the stories we tell ourselves all revolve around this ultimately. Uh, everything. There's a, a beautiful book that I read while I was researching this that, that has really shaped my thinking called The Worm at the Core, which is at the heart of every human endeavor is the fear of death. Why do we create art? It's a way of living on. Why do we do a lot of the things that we do? It's to deny the fact we're the only animal that knows we come with an end date. We're the only animal that knows, if I might quote the great philosopher Prince, party over oops out of time. That, in fact, even worse, what terrifies me is a variation on that. That a student said to me once, it's not that the party's over, it's that you have to leave it and the world goes on without you. Oof. And that knowledge also is terrifying that oh. I'm me, I'm the center. And then, no, once you're gone, you're a hand in a bucket of water. Once you're gone, the people who knew you will miss you, but it will be like you had never been there in the first place. And so there's this existential dread that we're filled with, with the knowledge of our own demise that no other animal has to deal with. And we fill that with art and culture and parties and going to the corner to drink a glass of wine. Because it's our way of pretending that ain't going to happen just yet. Yeah. And you know, so far we're right. But um, yeah. but so <laughs> this fear of death, though, there's something there when it's also the fear of being consumed. Or yeah. you argue uh, the fear of being prey. That, like that is like an or fear. Oh, yes. I mean, I, we were talking about sharks earlier. And one of the things that I, when I'm teaching about horror and fear, I'll ask the students, who here in this room has ever jumped in a swimming pool and then looked around to make sure there wasn't a shark in there? And <laughs> usually at least a third of the class will raise their hands sort of sheepishly and smile and laugh a little. I'm like, it's an irrational fear. You know, there's no way there is a great white shark in a swimming pool. There just isn't. But in your brain somewhere, you are still afraid. I have immersed myself in water and I am vulnerable now. You know, how many of you are afraid of toilet snakes? And people, you know, as the second question, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm afraid that I'm going to come into the house at night, sit down and there's a snake in the toilet. That might happen in Borneo or parts of Australia. It will not happen in Los Angeles. It will not happen. I'm from Connecticut originally. That's not going to happen here in New England. There are no toilet snakes. But we have these irrational fears because we don't want to be prey. We don't want to be bitten. We don't want to be consumed. We don't want. And people who have lived, who have had the experience of being bitten by a shark, being uh, bitten by a crocodile or pulled under by a hippo, you know, are sort of interviewed and tell the story of what's it like to have, you know, feel the jaws close around you and go, this might be it. And what that experience is. And they talk about it as being one of the most terrifying things in their life. Um, I always think of a line from The Simpsons, you know, being eaten by a tiger is just like falling asleep in a blender. <laughs> oh, God, that's horrible. That is horrible. And so that thought of being consumed, being prey, and on an atavistic level, I think we remember that. There's a reason why some people will keep yeah. snakes as pets, but most people have this very visceral reaction of no snake evil. 
even if the snake is the least harmless thing or the least harmful thing in the room, we remember being prey. We remember being up in the trees and knowing, okay, the things down on the ground can't get us, but these snakes can. Wow. So we're we're afraid on on a on an atavistic level, on a mm-hmm. species memory level of what it was like when we didn't have the boomsticks and the internets and uh, mm-hmm. we were the least strong and fierce thing around. Mm-hmm. Which, so. you know, for most of our, most of history, we indeed we were. Yeah. And if we didn't remember that on some sort of species atavistic, like cellular level, we've been telling ourselves about it ever since, mm-hmm. right? Like story after story is about that. And certainly within our own culture, we continue the metaphor. You know, if, if you're in business, eat or be eaten. Mm-hmm. You know, if, and if you have a choice between the two, I'd rather I'd rather be the big dog. I'd rather be the one mm-hmm. on top. I would rather be the person eating you than the person being eaten. Sure. And we, in our in our culture, at least certainly in American culture, <clears throat> we celebrate that kind of aggressive, predatory role. Whether it's in business, you know, even in the academy, where we pride ourselves on being intellectual and dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge, it can be very competitive, capitalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always chasing money for grants and that sort of thing, resources. Uh, that that whole eater beaten mentality is there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Perish. I mean, even the language perish. that we use is always about you're going to die <laughs> or you can kill someone who will die in your place. Publish or perish. Mm-hmm. I write a book. You don't. I get my job. You don't. And vice versa. So. And, mm-hmm. <sighs> um, and, and but then so there that's kind of a socially acceptable way to move about violence, right? And there are these socially acceptable things. Like being consumed isn't cool in a lot of ways, but it can be, you know, it can be acceptable. It can mm-hmm. be perfectly good. What's like where when what's the difference? What's the thing like that makes sky burial good and being dropped accidentally being like left to die like you know, being left and no one finds you and that's terrible. Like what's right. that? out well with sky bureau you you sort of already died so they're just letting your body be consumed by animals um i think it's also part partly to do with the culture if if you grow up in tibet or if you grow up in a zoroastrian culture and until recently in parts of iran for example and, and in zoroastrian cultures in the uk and the us that's just your culture you grow up with it you know for the same reason when you're a little kid you think everyone lives the way you do, and this is just how things are. And it isn't until you finally go over to a friend's house and you're like, wait, you don't get in trouble for chewing gum while the TV's on? The world is different than how we do it. Huh? And you begin to realize, oh, these things are not set in stone. They're culturally determined. But you you can't take that out of you. You've grown up in that world. We've grown up in a culture, and if you read books like uh, Jessica Medford's The American Way of Death, um, it used to be, as recently as 100 years ago, People died at home. Like by the time you were 10 or 12, you had extended families all living in the same area. You had seen several relatives die. Mm-hmm. If you're working on a farm, you know, your cousin got kicked in the head by a mule and died. Okay. But it was a slow process over a couple of days and everyone was there. The family prepared the body for burial. Uh, they were buried in a local cemetery. I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. The town center has the village green, the town hall on one side, the congregational church on the other, and then four cemeteries one for each of the churches around town. Mm-hmm. And that's in the center of town. Here's where the dead from the 18th century This is where we are. It's just part of life. And suddenly in the 20th century, it's like, no, more and more people are dying in hospitals and in hospices, and we do everything we can. We Our language shifts. We no longer talk about death. We talk about how someone passed. We no longer say, I'm sorry your dad died. We say, I'm sorry for your loss. We have, you know, we have funeral directors. They're not undertakers. They're funeral directors. And they're... And, and, 
that's what I do. I'm a director. So then, you know, they wear costumes and the whole thing is staged. And we talk about, they stage the body and they make the person look this way. And they, we do the whole thing to make it look like they're sleeping and the language is all death isn't real. And so we've put it behind a curtain and we've made it this very natural thing into this very scary thing now. And we try to keep it from the, oh, don't tell the kids. And, you know, we'll, we'll protect them so they don't need to know about this. Um, you know, my, my grandfather was one of, I think, 14 kids, and he saw at least two of his siblings die. Yeah, sure. He, he saw it. And uh, that's sad, but he's like, okay, that's that happens sometimes. So he's okay mm-hmm. with it. And I've not had that experience. Not that I want to see any of my siblings die, but, uh, you know, to me, wow. one of the reasons why I suspect, you know, I'm, I still have this terrible fear of death is because it is a stranger. It is something mm-hmm. that I haven't really had any close encounter with. Sure, grandparents pass away. <coughs> Everyone in, in secondary school, eventually you're going to see someone. Uh, someone in your class is going to be in a car accident or they're going to kill themselves. So you begin to encounter death as a teenager, but it's kept from you. It's kept at a distance. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're allowed to grieve, but you're not confronting the actual experience of death. Because you never experience your own death. Death is always the death of someone else. You don't experience your own death. You don't go through a grieving process. You're dead. Um, and in cultures that say, you know what, the way that we deal with the dead body is we feed it to things. Mm-hmm. You're like, cool, that's good. That's a part of life. We're returning it to the earth. We're, we're mm-hmm. to dust right. from dust. Awesome. But if you're like, oh no, and the body is sacred and we have to protect it and keep it safe and we have to put it in this locked box and put the locked box in a big concrete box and then we cover that up and we protect it and we keep it. We, we cut the grass once a week and we never forget and this idea of unless we protect the body, we're somehow doing something wrong. It mm-hmm. really makes, you know, this, the fact that, mm-hmm. oh, yes, and he was in the woods for five days before anyone found him and dogs had been at the body. And we're like, that's terrible. I'm like, no, but that happened after death. He didn't feel anything. It's just, didn't know. Yeah, it was just the, but in our the, culture, that's horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about, you know, the, the tragedy of that New York death where somebody dies and no one notices until he starts to smell. It's like, right. well. But behind, so partly that's the the fear of the rotting body and the fear Mm -hmm. of contagion and the fear of disease and the rotting corpse, all of which are genuine human fears. I would argue behind that, however, there's also that terrible fear of loneliness and of dying alone. And that's a movement right now, um, just sure coincidentally, of the, the real, you know, people talking about what is the good death and a good death is never a death alone Mm -hmm. that we see, um, you know, the, that there is someone there to say goodbye, to give you a last bit of warmth, to be present so you don't... We, ha- we have this cultural fear of being alone and especially being alone when you die. So in mm-hmm. hospices, you know, the family might be there, but the only child of this person has to go home and shower because they've been there for 48 hours nonstop. And most hospices now say, we have volunteers will then come in to make sure, God forbid, anything happens. But sometimes your parent is waiting for you to leave because they don't want you to be here when it happens. And on some level, they're they're mm-hmm. unconsciously yeah. just waiting to go until you go. And so we'll make sure that they're not alone when that moment happens. And that, that's, I think, speaks very much to our culture. And as always, I jump to pop culture because that's mm-hmm. where I think and live. And I look at the idea of, you know, being eaten. Quint's death in Jaws, where the shark comes up and he's screaming and it bites into him and pulls him off the boat, is meant to be horrific. But if we look at the death of the captain in George Romero's Day of the Dead, as zombies are, are tearing up apart, he's screaming, he dies screaming the words, choke on it, choke on it, as they're biting into him. And it's it's presented as not heroic, but comic. And to the very end, this guy wants the zombies that are killing. I mean, he's been unpleasant the whole film. And now that he's dying, his dying wishes that the zombies who are eating him choke. 
and can't eat anymore because they dared to eat him. And in a way, you know, there's this rough respect for the guy we haven't liked all along mm-hmm. who's the bad guy of the film, because to the end, he is defiant and obnoxious, and his death is kind of funny, even though it's horrific. So we, we use narrative. I mean, that's the other thing is film and literature, I think, are perhaps our culture's most powerful tools for talking to ourselves about how we deal with death. That's, you know, even in a superhero movie and superhero movies treat death as a joke because how many times have, you know, has a superhero died? And it's like, oh, but if we just bring the body to the fortress of solitude, oh, but if we just do this, it turns out that Batman has a secret solution in his veins that, and suddenly you have a film like Avengers Endgame that says, no, these people really died. They're really gone. Death is now actually real in the Marvel universe. And I think for a lot of fans, that was unexpected. Wait, you actually yeah. killed people who aren't supposed to die. These iconic characters who live forever. No, this guy's dead. This one's dead. This person's dead. And they're not coming back. And they're not coming yeah. back again. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know if I believe that they're not coming back. But I want yeah. to, though, because I think that's actually vital and necessary. Beowulf has to die in the end. The heroes can't live yes. forever. I think the best thing that Christopher Nolan never did with his Batman trilogy is that Bruce Wayne stops. He gives it up because he's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. But he leaves everything to be found by, uh, you know, uh, this other person who might now become the new Batman. The icon must live, but the person who is the icon, mm-hmm. get rid of him. We're done. There's, and there's like, I mean, there's also that transition, right? So death is this transition. You have, there's a ritual around it that you understand. Yeah. Um, the, the, everything else goes on. You're just not there for it. And so, um, you know, which brings up this link too of like where we go next, a transition to what, right? And um, there's a lot about, there's a lot of overlap between the consumption of human flesh and religious belief and religious ritual. Mm-hmm. And that is something I'm trying to wrap my head around still. Like, what's this about? Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's religious cannibalism, which can manifest in a variety of forms. Uh, the idea, for example, among the, the Iroquois in, uh, uh, among the First Nations, that you consume the heart of an enemy to gain their strength and to show dominance over them. Uh, and there's there's a religious quality to that you consume to take in and be a part of. Um, but con, you know, con, the con part of consume refers to the with, become one with. So mm-hmm. we consume food and that food becomes part of us. It helps to make us. Uh, and we, I mean, we could go into the whole Kristeva objection thing and me and not me, the stuff that then comes out the other end is not me and therefore vile and disgusting, but the stuff that stays in me is me and therefore good and powerful. And the, the funny thing, and I talk about this in the book in, in a chapter called, uh, eating the gods, gods eating men mm-hmm. is that gods consume people, but when they do, it's either purposeful or accidental. And when it's accidental, they get very mad about it because gods don't want to eat people usually. And yet at the same time, the at the heart of Christianity is Eucharist, is this notion of mm-hmm. uh, you must eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood if you want eternal life. You, and the, so when you have these Jesuit missionaries showing up in Canada um, and in, in uh, the, the northern United States, and they're like, oh, and this is our God, and we eat him. And all the First Nations peoples are like, these are cannibals. These people are crazy. These Europeans eat their gods. And the, at the same time, the Jesuits are like, these, these First Nation people are crazy. They're cannibals. They eat their enemies when they vanquish them in battle. I'm like, no, that's actually considered a great honor. And it's required by the gods that we do this. We must consume our enemies so that we gain their strength and flesh. You guys eat your God to gain eternal life. What's the difference? So everyone is everybody's cannibal. Mm-hmm. During the um, Middle Passage, 
um, as European slave ships would show up in, in Africa, they would see the pots boiling on, on the, uh, on the deck of the ship and go, Oh my God, they're going to cook and eat the people we're selling to them. These Europeans are cannibals. And the Europeans are like, Oh my goodness, these Africans are cannibals. These Caribbean, you know, everyone, everyone is everyone else cannibals. We all assume the other person is going to eat us. That's sort of the great fear. Um, and actual cannibalism is very slight, but going back to your actual question about eating gods, I think it has to do with this notion of when one ingests something, one takes it into you and it becomes a part of you. And it is this notion of becoming one with Christ and where the Catholic church runs into a little bit of trouble theologically. So I hope none of my Jesuit colleagues are listening to this, but I think where the, where the Catholic church runs into a bit of trouble with transubstantiation is this notion of this bread has just actually become human flesh. When we say the prayer, Mm -hmm. it's really the body of Christ. Uh, instead of the Protestant theology, which is consubstantiation, it is both bread and flesh, and it's yeah. it can stay bread because that's that. And you know, you have the Fourth Lateran Council going, nope, it's really flesh. Uh, no, that is not not kidding around. But it's not cannibalism. It's not cannibalism. So there's this whole theology of you need to eat the God that became human. The, the whole idea of the Christ event, of course, is that mm-hmm. it is incarnation; that it is God made flesh. And we keep coming. That's a word we've come to several times. So let's let's just stare at that for a second, this idea of flesh. To incarnate literally means, it's where we get the, from the Latin word carne. Incarnate. Incarnate, yeah. to go into meat. God mm-hmm. into meat. Uh, you know, carnivale, carnival, uh, the, the days before Lent, is farewell to meat. So <laughs> God is incarnate. God has become meat. And then we eat that meat, that bread that becomes meat, that becomes flesh. Uh, and so there's this whole idea circling around the notion of we are flesh, but we're the flesh that shouldn't be eaten, and yet we are eating the flesh of God. We are eating the flesh of animals, and we're kind of icked out when animals meet our flesh because that seems like a weird inversion. We're supposed to be on top, yeah. and yet God is above us, and we're supposed to eat him too. So there, there's this whole tension um, that is rooted in a very deep spiritual necessity of somehow connecting up to something greater than yourself, where there right. is the heart of another warrior to give yourself the, the qualities that you saw in them in battle that you want more of, or the wanting to connect to the divine, to the God who sent his only begotten son to us. And when you've been told for hundreds, thousands of years, this is the only way to eternal life. Well, again, we're right back at death's doorstep, aren't we? Things are fine now, but when you die, where are you going to go? And the medieval church is very good at eating imagery. If you, you know, Jesus sounds like he's a, a carb salesman in half of the medieval mystery plays. Like, you got to eat the bread, man. Got to eat bread. The only way to get to heaven is to eat the bread. And you know who's the bread? I'm the, who's got two thumbs in his bread? This guy. And if you don't eat me, you're not going to heaven. And in the meantime, they have a hell mouth on stage. The gate, the gate to hell is a giant mouth with flames coming out of it. And all of the evil sinners are tossed into the hell mouth at the end of the mystery plays. During the play, all, all the variations on the last judgment, mm-hmm. the people who turned away from God, who did not eat the bread, right into a mouth. They are eaten by hell. They go into the yeah. sarcophagus, the box that eats bodies. And then the good people all go to heaven where they, you know, because you ate the bread, you get to go to heaven. You didn't eat the bread, you get eaten. And we've come full circle. Eat or be eaten. Eat God. Or be eaten by hell. Or be eaten by hell. And this reaffirmation of the sanctity of flesh, the sanctity of the consumption of flesh, the sanctity of like the the both of those things, right? And so there's exactly. this bouncing up against each other, bumping up against each other of, the, of flesh and death and and fear. 
And so me, that's just... one of the great, great joys of teaching is showing students all of these connections. Be like, these things that you believe, these things that are part of your life, they actually go back to 13th century Europe. They actually go back to, uh, you know, when people crossed the Bering Strait, moved into Canada and established these cultures, and they believe this because of this, this, and this. And now that shapes your life. And I just find it fascinating how much, I mean, you're a trained historian, so you know these things. But seeing the, the stuff that you just take for granted right now actually came out of a very specific set of cultural circumstances 1,500 years ago in a series of hills outside of Rome. And as a result now, exciting. you believe what you believe. And that's exciting and fascinating. And it shows us how the stories we tell are important and how cultural they, 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 how they can shift literally reality because they shape what we believe, what we think is real and true. And we were talking at the very beginning about how crazy the world is and surviving. And we're seeing that right now. People making their own reality, choosing to believe what they believe, even in the face of scientific evidence, because sure. that's the reality right. they want to live in. Yeah. I, I, sure. That's a much nicer reality, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah. Or is it? I, mean, I don't know. But I guess. It, gets, it gets problematic when it runs up against, you know, science, which doesn't <laughs> sure. care what you believe. But even no. science itself is a belief system. Mm -hmm. I mean, science sure. and there's... is a method of belief. It's a method of, of unveiling truth, but it's not truth in and of itself. Although a lot of no, and there's stories we tell each other. We have lots of stories that we tell ourselves about that and how that's done, and we've made up these ways to, exactly. to deliver that message. As a species, sure. we are storytelling animals. Yeah, that's, we that's really we are. are right? We it's tell like, stories, and we tell stories about ourselves. Grade. We tell stories about each other. We're given great national stories. We're given great religious stories, but we also narrate the story of our own lives. We each live as if we're in a film. And we're like, ah, here is my story. And then when you ask other people, like, oh, no, no, that that's not how I see you at all. And you realize well, you're a supporting they, character in someone else's story. God, I love that. The kids know this thing where they're saying, the kids, Jesus, I just said that seriously. <laughs> like, for real. Like, but um, One of my students explained something. And were, she just said to me, I was having a main character moment. It's like, that. Yeah, this is That's a sophisticated so generation. They understand narratology and narrative and hauntology, and they understand how stories work on a meta level. So they consciously do it, especially with a generation that, if you're not on TikTok, are you even real? Right. So are they're you constantly narrating themselves and recognizing the narration of others and the importance of narrative. And then you always have the kids who are like, no, nah, I'm going to pull out. I'm not part of that. You're like, yeah. But that's still a narrative. That's the point. Yeah. Sorry. Inescapable. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you choose not to make a choice. You're, you still, you, you still are making a choice. That's uh, a rush. bad rush line. No, no not bad. <laughs> bad. Well, it was a bad quote. Of, not from Neil you, no, 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 no. Yes. Any, anytime we invoke rush, we're doing okay. <laughs> right. It's just, it was in, it was inadequate. Uh, I'm sorry. I was a Jewish boy in the eighties. Rush is God. Oh my God. Right. It was the only girl I knew who loved rush. Um, Still proud of it. Excellent. All right. <laughs> you know, I think that it, I can't think of a better place to end than with like a little rush celebration. You will, indeed. <laughs> God, uh, this was super great. I have just one more question, and I'm not even sure I'm ready to ask it. What's next? What are you doing now? Oh, I, dear I just Lord, can't um... even. What is this going to be? I'm 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 working on several things. I have a whole I, I I do book chapters for other people, so I'm working on several different book chapters for folks right now on everything from uh, Japanese folk horror uh, in no theater that shows up in Japanese cinema. I'm working on a piece on Jordan Peele's um, sketches on in Key and Peele and how they sort of foreground his work as a horror uh, person. I, uh, I'm working on a piece on ghosts on the Japanese stage and on African American. Um, 
plays that depict Africa and construct Africa and Africans uh, as a means of identifying African-American identity. In terms of books, uh, I'm finishing up right now for Rutledge a book on a history of horror in the theater. That horror as a concept has only been around since the 18th century with the development of the Gothic. But Aristotle at the very beginning says, theater is all about fear. And so if, if theater is supposedly rooted in fear from the beginning, let's do a history of fear in the theater and how theater itself is a horror-making enterprise. And then hand-in-hand hand with that, book commonly with that on Shakespeare and ghosts and hauntings, looking at both the ghosts in Shakespeare and why they're so sort of hard to do, but also the links to Shakespeare himself and hauntings, that there are haunted theaters, that Shakespeare himself supposedly haunts several places. So it's thinking about death and Shakespeare and why those two are sort of linked. And then... I'm having a great time with Eaters of the Dead, so I think I might try and follow that up with a book on witches, and uh, in particular, witches on stage, because we start off with Medea, and of course you have Macbeth, and the Witch of Edmonton, and Wicked, and the Wizard of Oz, but there's a whole, and then the, Cruci the Crucible alone you can do books mm -hmm. and books on, and the children of the Crucible, right. because they're all... Starting in like roughly the 1990s, there are a number of feminist writers who are like, here's the problem with Arthur Miller's play. Mm -hmm. Sure. Women get the short end of the stick. So let's actually look at what happened in Salem. Because uh, right. Salem is the one thing, any, if you ask any American, what do you know about what happened before the American, they know the American Revolution. Well, what about before then? They only know two incidents, the Pilgrims and the Salem Witch Trials. Most Americans sure. can't tell you anything else. So the Salem Witch Trials are sort of integral to our national identity. And yet the problem is, Nobody actually, well, I don't want to say nobody, but in the popular culture, they're so misrepresented. Yeah. And you have things like The Conjuring and um, Hocus Pocus and Sabrina that are all like, oh, and we're descendants of the Salem witches. I'm just sitting there going, there were no witches in Salem, so you can't be that. <laughs> you can't be a descendant of something that didn't exist. I mean, that's the ultimate in postmodern. I'm the descendant of something that never actually existed. And we're going to build a replica of it right over there. Come visit our replica of something that didn't exist. So yeah. looking at how witches have been constructed on stage and what that tells us about our fear of women and our, our mm -hmm. fascination with powerful women uh, and tying that into representation, I think that's going to be, uh, that'll pull me away from death a little bit, although a lot of witches obviously died. Yeah, there's um, a lot. And witches and their control of death and like the yeah. idea that they can cross between the veil, like there, there's a lot of death in witches. Yeah, for me, death is kind of like a roommate That's that has a significant other. Uh, people, death is always here. His stuff is here. But then people are like, where's death? I'm like, oh, I stand with his girlfriend tonight. But don't worry, he's always around. Okay? <laughs> I can't get rid of it. It's always going to lurk somewhere close by, even if it's not right in the on. room right now. So that, that feels wonderful. like a very bad note to end on. So let's end on that note. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Rush that, and that's death. Rush and death. And it These suits our nature. Like things. Our love of macabre. All right, Kevin, thank you so much. What a great time. I'm glad we got to have this conversation. I, I, I am glad as well. It was a pleasure talking with you.